Father God, would you uh, be our teacher? Would you speak to us and guide us in this, this part of our worship? Uh, we acknowledge, God, that it's easy to come and sit and do religious activity and really miss, miss the magnitude of what we were just singing, that the name, the very name of Jesus is a wonderful name. Uh, there is no greater name. There is no greater king. There's never been a greater teacher teaching truth the way you did, Jesus. So help us understand your teaching this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, uh, we have already looked at Jesus' teaching two weeks ago, and the teaching was, do not judge. Remember that? And we discovered an amazing thing, that what Jesus meant was, do you remember what he meant? He meant, do not judge. judge. (laughs) That's what he meant, yeah. He meant what he said. He wasn't kidding. You know, do not judge is is what he said. Uh, This week, we're going even deeper into how relationships, our relationships, can get off track. And we're going to look at the the teaching of Jesus that follows that that, uh, passage that we looked at two weeks ago. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So understand this morning we're talking about specks and planks. And uh, you know what? You can divide all people in the world into two categories. Picture two circles, if you will. In the one circle is everybody else. Uh, In the other circle is you. Now, I have a question for you. Those two circles, which circle are you in charge of? You see, we're a little confused about that. Uh, Only the you circle. (laughs) Uh, only the you circle. You see, the everybody else circle, you do not control. Jesus' teaching is not subtle here. Uh, There are other people's faults, and then there are my faults. And you would think that I would be much more aware of my faults than other people's faults. That's what you would think. You would think that I would notice my problems long before I would ever notice your problems. Uh, Long before, uh, you know, uh, you you say to me, Dwayne, you have faults. And I'm like, really? What faults? I don't see any faults. But I see your faults very, very clearly with great clarity. Uh, You see, my problem is I prefer, however, to deal with your faults as opposed to dealing with my faults. I prefer, in fact, to, to blame my problems on other people. Do you know what my problem is? My problem is my mother and my father. Uh, my problem is my spouse. Uh, my problem is I don't have a spouse. Uh, my problem is the place where I work. My problem is the fact that I don't have a place to work. Uh, my problem is you. That's the point. You see, I can see your tiny little problem, but I can't see my great big problem. And this is the plank that Jesus is talking about in this passage. I can see uh, my problem is me, or no, not really. My problem is you. I don't see my habit of blaming others. I don't see my habit of judging others. And so there's a sense in which I will do almost anything to avoid taking responsibility for me and my problems. People go through their whole life and they never, 
even identify, let alone own and take responsibility for the real problem in their life, which is, of course, them. This is so common that you probably are thinking right now about someone who you think really needs to hear this sermon, this teaching, and, oh, it would be so good if, if they were here. Well, the good news is they are here. The bad news is they are you. Okay? We learn to evade responsibility and assign blame, and uh, even when we're very, very little things, very young. Uh, a woman and her husband tried to teach their little son about how good God is, and as parents will sometimes do, they were kind of asking their son questions. Who made the sun, Johnny? And Johnny would answer, God did. And who made that tree? And Johnny would say, God did. And who made that bird, Johnny? And Johnny would say, God did. And one morning, mom goes into Johnny's room, and uh, it was just a huge mess. There were toys everywhere. There were clothes pulled out of drawers, clothes out of the closet, food hijacked from the kitchen, spills all all over the room and as a parent normally would uh, she wanted to know who made this mess John and he said God did yeah <laughs> where do our children learn how to blame others at such an early age not for me I didn't do it Holly maybe but not for me <laughs> when our kids were little uh, we had a finished basement and the kids would play down there a lot uh, one time I came down and I discovered that someone had written you know made marks on the wall with a marker and uh, I, of course, wanted to know who, who did this. And they're standing right there, and they all looked at each other. They all looked back at me, right? And they had the audacity to tell me that none of them had done it. And that was their story, and they were sticking with it. You know, how stupid is that? But that's their story. Uh, I read about a man who went to traffic school uh, where everybody had to go around the circle and tell what violation they had uh, committed, what law they had broken that had brought them to this to this class, traffic school. Amazingly enough, as they went around the room, not one of them were really responsible for breaking any law whatsoever. Uh, they all had justifications for speeding or for gliding through stop signs or stop lights or what have you. When it got to this one guy, he said, well, I came to a stop sign, but I didn't stop. I just rolled right through it. I was entirely wrong and I got a ticket. And there was a moment of silence. And then everybody started laughing and they applauded because they realized that suddenly this was the only guy in the whole group that was being honest about what had brought them to this school. Now, the thing is, that's really what the church should be. Uh, a place where we cheer, we clap uh, for people when people become honest about owning their own stuff, their own sin. You see, the church is a place where people aren't perfect and therefore aren't looking for somebody else's specs. You get the idea? We don't go looking for other people's specs before we deal with our own planks. Jesus calls us to focus on the plank that is in our own eye. He wants us to take responsibility for what's in here, for my own life. You see, God made us in the beginning, Genesis says. He created human beings. He made us in his image. He wanted us to prosper. He wanted us to reproduce, fill the earth, rule over, subdue, have dominion, take charge. All of these things he built into human beings. He wanted us to be responsible for the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and every living thing that moved upon the face of the earth. God made us, in other words, to be responsible because that's the way God is. God is responsible himself. And so God gave us little spheres where there are certain things under our dominion. 
Turns out people are actually happiest when they have responsibility, when they have things to do that they believe really matter. Uh, This is part of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We've been learning that all of us, each of us, has has a little kingdom, if you will. And your kingdom is, of course, your life, your sphere of influence. And that is God's gift to you. And that, of course, begins with your body. You make decisions about your body all the time, what you're going to put in it, how you're going to treat it, and so. And you are actually meant to be empowered and led by God as you reign over your little kingdom, your sphere of influence. So, you know, how will you spend your time today? Well, you will decide that. Nobody else. How will you treat other people today? Well, again, you will decide that. Uh, what will your attitude be today? Well, again, you will decide that. What will you fill your mind up with today? Again, you will decide that. God made people to be responsible. Uh, when God originally created human beings, he gave them one very important rule, very important law. He said to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But of course, the first man, the first woman, do exactly what God told them not to do. We all know what happened. God asks Adam, comes walking in the cool of the evening and says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. God asked him a really simple question. Adam could have just said, yes, Lord, my bad. I blew it. You gave that command specifically to me. I disobeyed it, my fault, not Eve's. But that's not what he does. In fact, what he does is he kind of throws Eve under the bus with this. It's not my fault, it was the woman, he says. And not just that, did you notice the way he says it? It was the woman you put here with me, God. That's what he says. What were you thinking, God? Who made this mess? God did. That's what he's saying. And then God questions Eve, and Eve does exactly the same thing. Eve looks around. The only one left to blame is the serpent, so that's who she blames. In Milton's Paradise Lost, there's a really wonderful section. It's a long section that portrays uh, that of Adam and that of Eve blaming each other. They're in the garden after the fall. She's blaming him. He's blaming her, and so on and so forth. And uh, Milton ends it this way. He says, thus they in mutual accusation." spent the fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning, and of their vain contest appeared no end. Question, were Adam and Eve the last married couple to spend fruitless hours in mutual accusation? Were they? No, not by a long shot, no. You see, something broken in us, the Bible calls it sin, uh, predisposes us to make excuses and offer accusations. Now, this does not mean, of course, that we don't confront each other. Uh, It doesn't mean that we do not speak hard words of truth to each other. Jesus says something about that very thing elsewhere in his teaching. 
So that's not what he's saying. Of course, we need to speak truth into each other's lives. It's just that we need to do that well, and we need to do it when it's called for, and we need to do it when the plank is being dealt with in our own life and not before. See, the plank is about really a spirit of blame, a spirit of condemnation. It's not my fault. It's not me. It's you. You're the problem. Uh, there was a pastor, uh, or is a pastor, uh, as far as I know, he's still alive. His name's Andy Stanley. You ever heard of him? Um, and he says that often when a spouse with a distressed marriage comes in to talk to him, usually all they can talk about is where their spouse is at fault. That's all they can talk about. And they go on and on, you know, blaming or pointing out the faults of their spouse. And Stanley will say to them, well, you know, clearly the person who is the real problem isn't here uh, so here's what I'm going to do, he tells them. He says, I'm going to draw a circle, and this circle represents 100% of the chaos, 100% of the pain that's currently existing in your relationship. And then he tells them, I want you to draw kind of a slice inside this pie that represents your part of that pain, your part of that uh, chaos, your, your part of that, that brokenness, if you will. And he says, they will generally draw a slice about this big. And it's always a, a small slice. It's a small part of the pie. You see, their blame and responsibility is always a lot smaller than their spouse's. He's never seen it be contrary to that. And he says uh, to them then, well, since, you know, your spouse is not here, this slice of the pie, however small, however big it is, is really the only thing that we can work on. It's the only thing that you have control over. So here's what's interesting. He says, he says, in almost every case, even though he tells them, we're going to talk about this slice, they can't do it. He says he's never seen a, a, an instance where, where they can really do that. Um, they can't talk about their slice of the pie. They keep going back to what they perceive to be the bigger problem, which is always their spouse. And the point is just, you know, people, we, we get so addicted to complaining about the speck in the other person's eye. And there, there may be many specks there, but we get so focused and locked in on that. There's something broken in us that prevents us from seeing the plank that's in our own eye. And you might call this whole thing kind of the responsibility pie or pie of responsibility. You can apply it in your marriage. You can apply it at work. What bothers you at work? Well, you know, here are all the problems. What slice of that is your problem, you see? You can apply it to parenting and, you know, problems with children. Or you can apply it to children to your parents. The point is this. If you focus on your slice of the pie... If you focus on being responsible for what you can actually be in charge of, what God has placed under your dominion, I make you this promise. If you can focus on that slice, you will grow. I promise you that. You will learn to become more like Jesus Christ. You will learn to pray prayers like, God, change this in me. Change me. Make me more like I should be. Grow me up. Guide me, God. And what will happen over time is your kingdom, your sphere of influence, these things that you control, these things will prosper. They will increase. They will get healthier. They will get stronger. They will get wiser. They will get better. Your dominion will increase. And understand, this is what God wants for all of us. Even when we're going through really stressful, difficult, maybe even suffering kinds of times. 
On the other hand, if you focus on the other person, if you focus on what they're doing wrong, if you focus on assigning blame to them, uh, again, it could be marriage, could be work, could be kids, could be any number of things. If you focus on what others are doing wrong or what they're not doing, what will happen is your problems will grow. I promise you that. They won't get better. They'll get worse. And your resentment will grow. And your judgment will grow. And your little kingdom will get smaller and smaller and less and less healthy because blame is not productive. Blame wastes tons of energy. Blame spoils relationships. Not, not even the relationship with the person you're blaming, but it spills out and spoils other relationships. Blame poisons families. It, it undermines workplaces. It tears apart churches. It violates love. Love, we are told, um, looks over, passes by, covers over sins of all kinds, the Apostle Paul tells us. But you know, uh, well, I'll tell you, we, we can rationalize our blaming very, very quickly, can't we? Um, this coming October, some of us are going to Myanmar. We're going to be visiting Rova, our church planter there in Rangoon, and, and we'll be getting better informed about his ministry, find out better ways to bless them and cooperate with them in their efforts to plant churches among Buddhists, and also to bless them and their students that they have in their school. Um, and I started looking into what I need to do in order to uh, make that trip happen, and one of the things I was looking into were diseases that are common over there. Uh, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, typhoid, uh, cholera, malaria, diarrhea is a big one. Looking forward to that. Japanese encephalitis, rabies. You know, and I thought, well, I'm probably going to need some shots. Might need some pills for some of this. So I called my doctor's office. I spoke with his assistant. And, I, you know, I was a little irritated in my thinking, in my mind about all this. I mean, having to make appointments and update shots and take pills. I mean, I'm an important guy. I'm a busy, busy guy. All this felt like kind of an inconvenience to have to schedule into my time. And as I'm getting this information, my doctor's assistant says to me, man, you are so blessed to be a pastor. I mean, you get to help people. You get to go to Myanmar. You get to see some great sights. You get to travel. Uh, you get to help little children and, you know, who don't even have enough education or enough food at times. You must be loving all this. I thought, yeah, that's right. That's exactly how I feel now. <laughs> the point is, it's, it's so easy for me to fail to live with gratitude, uh, to fail to live with love and responsibility or energy or excitement or enthusiasm or to fail to live with love and with joy and with dependence on God and, you know, just blame it on the busyness of my schedule. It's not me. It's not here. It's this schedule. It's tasks that I've got to, get, to do. It's some outside force. It's something out there instead of something in here. But you see, taking responsibility for my life is part of God's plan for my growth. I can't grow otherwise. Even when genuinely bad stuff happens to me and bad stuff does happen to us, you know, we're not supposed to ignore that. We're not supposed to deny it. We're not supposed to act like bad stuff is good stuff. Heck no, we acknowledge it. We face it. 
And then we join our little kingdom such as it is with all of its limitations and so to God's great big kingdom because we know, we believe, we're certain that God's great big kingdom is going somewhere great. And he's going to take us with him in that. You see, and so I ask God to help me and I ask God to work because I know in his plan one day, he's going to change everything. He's going to fix everything. He's even going to fix me. And I can be confident of that. Uh, there was a brilliant thinker. Uh, he was at Stanford University some years ago. I think he died in the 70s, but uh, he actually converted to Christianity as an adult. His name is Rene Girard. Uh, he was a historian, a literary critic. He was a philosopher, a philosopher of social sciences. And he studied and he wrote about the problem of blame. In fact, he wrote a book. It's called The Scapegoat. Um, and uh, he makes the point that all people, all societies, all cultures have a, a custom of scapegoating. Scapegoating is that practice where we find somebody or some other group to pin the blame on, Right? even for the things that are not their fault, not if we were really capable of being honest. We'll blame it on them, blame it on the scapegoat. And Gerard said that it's almost like a safety valve. It's, it's like all the blame for bad stuff happening or missed opportunities or downturns in the economy, all these things that make us, uh, fill us with resentment or rivalry or angry anger or whatever, it, it gets poured out on the scapegoat so that we don't have to examine ourselves and we don't have to own our portion, our slice of the pie. It's like the one kid in grade school who gets picked on because maybe they look different, maybe they act differently, maybe they're clumsy, maybe they're unattractive, whatever. Nobody votes on this. It's just like everybody somehow knows that this is the person we're going to scapegoat. This is the person we're going to tease. This is the person we're going to blame because it helps us feel better about ourselves if we blame them. Um, Gerard actually talks about the, this dynamic in unhealthy families. In unhealthy families, there's lots of blaming goes on. In fact, one of the worst expressions of this uh, scapegoating kind of a thing in a family is you'll have a child who's a black sheep. And even the parents participate in this. If I can blame this child, then I'm okay. I, I don't have to look at myself, deal with myself, my brokenness, and so and so he just says, families, tribes, nations all have scapegoats, always have. A point, you know, who was Hitler's scapegoat? Yeah, Jewish people. Who was Stalin's? Well, Stalin's scapegoat happened to be anybody who disagreed with him, right? Either kill him or send him off to a camp, right? In Rwanda, if you know anything about the atrocities that happened there, the scapegoat was the Tutsis. Uh, if you know anything about the Ottoman Empire, there was a whole group of people that the Ottomans oppressed, and there was a genocide among the Armenians that happened. Scapegoating people means dehumanizing them, putting blame on them. Maybe some is deserved, but most of it isn't. You see, in the Bible, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 16, we're told about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where a priest would actually have a goat chosen by lot, and it was called the scapegoat, interestingly enough. And he would put his hands on this, this scapegoat, and he would confess the sins of Israel, which were many, onto this goat. And then the goat would be released into the wilderness, and it was a picture of the sins of Israel being removed and sent far away, and therefore the people of Israel being forgiven by God because the blame has been put on a scapegoat. Now, Gerard pointed out that in ancient cultures, 
cultures outside of Israel, sacrifices very often involved human sacrifice, even often the sacrifice of children. These were people uh, who, who would be sacrificed to placate and to appease the gods. They were human scapegoats, literally, uh, which meant that all the problems of the society or the tribe were now pinned on them. You see, the idea was that sacrificing them would heal the community from its chaos, from its pain, and so problems that nobody wanted to own, right? Not me, not my problem. Put it on the scapegoat. In fact, the idea that scapegoating a victim would heal the community's problem, this is so deeply rooted in ancient societies, we see it bubble to the surface in the Greek culture. Do you know the Greek word for the victim who is scapegoated is pharmakos? Isn't that interesting? We get our word pharmacology from this. Medicine, something to heal our problems. Uh, we, we see this human dynamic at work in the Bible in many different stories. You know the story of Cain and Abel, of course. Uh, Cain, unlike his brother Abel, fails to offer God a proper sacrifice. He's upset. He's angry. But instead of taking responsibility for his sin and owning it and making changes and doing things right, what he actually does is scapegoat it upon his brother Abel. And if you know the story, he kills his brother's Abel. He thinks to him, his brother Abel, he thinks to himself, I just get rid of my brother. The standard is gone and things will be fine. I'll be okay. Now, George, in studying these things, notice that in the Bible, something unprecedented happens in these stories of scapegoating. Um, when you read these stories in the Bible, you find out that, that God is sympathetic for the victim in scapegoating. The one who gets scapegoated, God cares about. Uh, God condemns the act, in fact, of people or families or nations scapegoating other people. And this is just unheard of, frankly, in ancient cultures. Gods simply don't do this. Uh, God says to Cain, for example, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Ancient gods, pagan gods are looking forward to the next sacrifice. Not the God of the Bible. Not when that sacrifice is another human being. Joseph's brothers, uh, scapegoat Joseph, if you know his story, they get rid of him. They think, well, you know, if we just get rid of him, we'll be okay. Things will be right with our father. But God cares about Joseph, the victim, the scapegoat. The point is, in the Bible, the ancient, nearly universal practice of scapegoating begins to get undermined, turned on its head. It begins to collapse, and all of this, of course, comes to a climax in the ministry and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, as you know, is the holy, innocent one. He is utterly blameless. He's the only one who is without sin. All the powers that be, the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, scribes, the political leaders as well, both Roman and Jewish, all decide that Jesus is the problem. We need to get rid of Jesus. They make Jesus a scapegoat. And the one man, humanly speaking, who could have done something about this, Pontius Pilate, is so interesting. What does he do? Well, he publicly washes his hands of any responsibility for the death of Jesus. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. You see, that's the way we do things very often. But of course, nobody is innocent. Not you, not me, not of Jesus' blood. 
The only innocent one is Jesus himself. And on the cross, he lays bare the mechanism, the evil, the violence, the wickedness, the injustice of scapegoating. And here's the incredible thing. He does this willingly. He, he marches to the cross willingly. He goes out to the place of wilderness willingly, which is where the scapegoat goes. I, I love the words of Peter. The apostle Peter says this. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And of course, there was nothing to judge in Jesus except your sin and mine. And Jesus took that punishment. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, Peter says, quoting the prophet. It's amazing, really. In Christ's great love, he absorbs all the sin, all the hatred, all the violence, all the wickedness of the world upon himself on the cross. He pays that price. He makes that atonement. And in his resurrection, he says, now the way of blaming and the way of stigmatizing and the way of judging and condemning and rejecting, that way is over. Not in my kingdom, you see. And Jesus... The Messiah has become, to everyone's utter amazement, to everyone's utter surprise, Jesus has become the great scapegoat, the, the ultimate scapegoat, the final once and for all scapegoat, the one who takes our sins on himself so we can be forgiven. And when you let that sit in, if you get that, That changes your perspective on dealing with other people. You see, this is why in Jesus' community, the church, everybody's welcome even though nobody's perfect. That doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense in Jesus' kingdom. And so Jesus calls us, if we're his follower, he calls us to practice living in light of this truth. Yes, you have a speck in your eye, but I have a bigger problem. I have a plank in mine. And so I'm going to focus on the plank in my eye and not the speck, you see, that is in yours. And that plank, a spirit of condemnation that I have, a spirit of blame, a spirit of excuse making, could be triggered by any number of things. It, it could be triggered by, by just finding out what I'm going to need to go to Myanmar. It can be triggered by your morality. I don't like your morality or your immorality. It can be triggered by someone's ethnicity. It can be triggered by behavior that drives me be crazy. It can be triggered by a bad driver in front of me, which I always seem to find. It can be triggered by someone's religious beliefs. It can be triggered by someone's political beliefs or ideologies. 
I mean, it can be triggered by something just as simple as just generational differences. You know, this stuff divides churches all the time. Maybe you're older. Maybe you're in my category, ancient. And what that means is you come to church and you see somebody who's younger than you and you think, you know, why don't they wear something besides jeans and a T-shirt? I mean, what's with that? Why do they pierce their bodies? What is with that? Why do they have to tattoo their skin? Come on. Why do they want the music to be so loud? Why do they have to wear a hat? Don't they know? that's a grave sin just under the surface you see is the question why can't they be just like me and yet boy thinking like that blinds us to the things that God is doing in younger people good things the heart that he's put in them of compassion the idealism that's there the desire to make a difference the desire to have their faith make a real difference or or maybe you're that young person right and what that means is you come to church and you see somebody older and you think boy why do they have to be so formal why do they have to be so picky why do they have to be so wrinkly Why are they so technologically incompetent, you know? And read between the lines. What what question is that really asking? It's asking the question, why can't they be more like me? And maybe you're not sure whether you're younger or older. That means you're in the older category. So I'm just suggesting to us in light of the teaching of Jesus, in light of bringing my little kingdom into his kingdom and submitting to his kingdom, why don't we just stop trying to straighten out other people and focus on ourselves? I heard a guy say this one time, if you want to straighten people out, you ought to work in a funeral home because that's the only place where when you straighten people out, they stay in the position you want them. Living people tend to resist straightening. Have you noticed that? This week, let's give up the practice of straightening out other people. This week, let's practice taking responsibility for our own lives, for our slice of, if you will, of the responsibility pie. And instead of automatically getting defensive or trying to justify or making excuses for ourselves, let's own our stuff. This week, step back and pray the all-important prayer. God, God, help me. God, help me see my plank in my words, my actions, my habits, my spirit, my patterns and attitudes. God, help me. This late week, let's all ask God to help us identify what the plank is that needs to be removed. You know, Jesus is right. The problem isn't just that we have a plank in our eye. The problem is we don't even notice the plank. And so sometimes we need outside help to become aware of what it is that needs changing. The old language for this is conviction of sin. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's the gift nobody wants, but it's the all-important gift, the work of the Holy Spirit and a human heart to let us see ourselves for who we really are. I'll give you a picture of this. I love this story. I've shared it before, but it's a good one. Uh, There's a guy named Charles Steinmetz, and he was an electrical engineer in the early 1900s, and he was an absolute genius. 
Uh, Henry Ford called Steinmetz once to come to one of his factories and consult because they had a huge electrical generator, uh, several of them actually. One of them wasn't working, and so production was uh, at a halt, and they needed somebody to figure this out, and none of the engineers there on site could. And So he comes to the plant. He spends a couple days there walking around, listening to things, tapping things, and so on. And then at one point, he gets a ladder, and he gets up on this big generator, and he puts a chalk mark X on it right over a plate that's there and he tells the engineers to remove that plate and replace 16 windings of the field coil and uh, they do what he says and lo and behold it works <laughs> and Henry Ford was thrilled until he got the bill for $10,000 and that back then was a lot of money and so Ford was furious and he asked for an itemized bill you know why why so much money and Steinmetz uh, sends back a, an itemized bill. There's two things on it. One, chalk mark, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. <laughs> and Ford paid the bill. Here's the thing. Every one of us has a plank. We have many. And maybe it's an attitude or a habit or something we do in relationship. And because of that, my life is not working right and my character is out of whack. I am not who Jesus wants me to be. And I don't even know why. I'm not even aware of what these planks are. And understand, this is the human condition and this is even my condition in Jesus. I need someone to put a mark somewhere. The psalmist says, but who can discern their own errors? And the answer is, yeah, no one. Therefore, forgive, you see, my hidden faults. They're hidden to me. He's saying, I can't see them. That's the plank. I don't notice. But if we invite the work of the Holy Spirit into our lives, if we open the word of God and ask the Holy Spirit to teach, to reveal, to expose, to make a mark, he will do that. I promise you, he, he will do that. And I would just submit that's what we need to do. We need to invite God to change us. The problem is most of us whether walk around with our chalk and I'll just put a mark on your forehead. You know, you need to change that. That's really disturbing. This bugs me, you know, and on and on we go. Well, instead of doing that this week, ask God to help you know where to put the mark in you, your life. Because there's something God wants to change in you and in me. And this is maybe the greatest uh, relationship prayer, or at least one of them, that we can pray as we have relationship with God. And that is, Lord, change me. Not, Lord, change him or her or this or that, but, Lord, change me. Make me more like Jesus, change my attitude, my patterns of thinking, my sarcasm, the way I nag, the negative perspectives I bring to things, the lack of gratitude, the defensive spirit, the stubborn streak, this greed that I find. I mean, Lord, change me. And so that, that's the assignment this week. Pray that prayer. Mean that prayer. Pray it as you open the word of God and read it. Because almost... 99% of the time, the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us with conviction of sin is as we sit humbly, openly, 
honestly before the word of God. Leave you with this. This week it's all about the speck. No, not really. It's just the opposite, isn't it? This week it's all about the plank. Our plank. We're letting go of the speck for now. And we're going after the plank. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, this is business that uh, we cannot even begin to accomplish on our own. In fact, God, we just acknowledge to you that our faults, we are so blind to them that without the help of your word and the work of your spirit, we won't see them. We can't see them. We walk around thinking and saying, what plank? What problem? So God, would you guide us? Would you create in us a spirit to take Jesus' teaching seriously? We don't want to be hypocrites, God. And it's not that we don't want to help others, but we're too good at pointing out specks without dealing with planks. And so this week, would you help us, God, to really sit with you, listen to you? Would you expose our planks and then give us the strength, the power of your spirit, to change. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.